Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation podcast on professionalism. My name is Paul Tully, Professionalism Manager at the ETF, and this is part of a series on the topic of professionalism in the further education and training sector. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Lou Mycroft, author, researcher, teacher, social media influencer and TED Talk speaker, whose recent work on the thinking environment is the focus of today's topic. Hello, Lou. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm very, very well and absolutely delighted to have you. Thank you for joining us. Today's podcast delves deeper into the subject of professional culture, how to define it and how to improve it. Lou, what's the thing that you have most enjoyed about working in the further education and training sector? The first thing that comes to mind, Paul, is the diversity in the sector, the difference across all dimensions of difference. That is always super exciting. And I always think it's useful to just check in with what FE is, because people have all sorts of different ideas about it. And for me, it always has been, yes, it's about getting people's skills, maths, English, digital these days, essentially up to scratch so they can participate in the world. It's about top class vocational skills training. And in the best circumstances, we do that work together with employers. But it's also it has a social purpose. And Education FE has always had a social purpose for me. So it's about the literacies, work literacy, emotional, social literacy that people really need to be able to operate and thrive in the world. I'm not interested in churning out bots. You know, I want people to be able to have a really rounded experience. And I think we do that really, really well. So I love the differences. We know, of course, that as we get up the food chain in FE work, those differences are not replicated. I work on the Advanced Practitioners Programme for the ETF, and I see banks of white faces at that Advanced Practitioners level. And of course, that's only one dimension of difference. So we've got challenges. But I came into FE at Northern College 22 years ago as a community worker. And I think building communities has always been such a joyful part of my practice that I'm able to continue as a freelancer, seeing how humans operate around one another and and bring their energies and share their energies to the work. So it's not ever been just about the individual for me. I know. And having entered the sector in 1995 myself, it's the most marvellous sector. It creates opportunity. It creates joy. It creates lasting relationships. And I I know what the feeling that that brings to so many teachers out there doing a very challenging job. There's no doubt about it. Further education is a very challenging job, sometimes very much underestimated. And certainly this podcast aims to try and shed light on some of those complexities. And one of those is professional culture. So when people talk about professional culture, it's likely that they may have different views about what this refers to. So with your experience of both teaching in the sector and writing about it, Lou, what does professional culture mean to you and how would you characterise it in the sector at the moment? Professional culture is very challenging, I think, in FE at the minute because it's become something which is imposed from the outside. And the more it's imposed from the outside, the less people figure out what is in them. We are professionals. That's part of our identity as educators And finding that internal ethics, that internal value system, for me, is what brings a really healthy professional culture to any organisation. 
And the more that we are expected to, you know, adhere to some tick box culture, the less people are inclined to do that or indeed encouraged or supported to do that because values clash. Values clash all the time. And when there's a values clash, it becomes very difficult sometimes to be that person who says, hang on a minute, what's happening to equality here? What's happening to respect? What's happening to kindness? I have absolutely no issue at all with professional expectations. None. I've always, to be honest, been a big fan of the ETF's professional standards. I think it's a decent piece of kit. Anything you write down will have incredible amounts of limitations, is not contextualised. And so just that can't stand on its own. It can be a guide, but people still need to work out their own stuff. And I've got a little story for you, which is a door poster that I see at a college who shall not be named. And every door has this poster. It's for students rather than staff. But you can, you know, you can see how it works. And it says, don't sit on the floor outside class because professionalism or because it's not professional. What does that mean? What does that mean to a 16 year old? What does it mean to me? Don't tell me what to do without telling me why or letting me figure out what the why is. What if that poster said, please don't sit on the floor outside class because respect. I don't think we do enough work with educators and with students to get them to find out what's inside. And that is harming our professional cultures because it becomes about compliance. And as policies build up over years, often the detail gets quite ridiculous. So things like staff dress policies, you know, oh, it's okay. You see loads of people in leather trousers, but you can't wear a pair of jeans. Well, just tell me. And and, and the only reason is that in 1984, somebody wrote blue jeans into a policy. So, you know, we should be able to find within ourselves what it is to be professional if we take a pride in our work. It's quite hard to do that at the minute because there are so many demands on educators' time, which makes the exciting bit more and more challenging. If I could just follow up, Lou, on that, I've heard that phrase, the regulated professional attention in that word professionalism sometimes embodies that concept of autonomy judgment discretion but the regulated bit and we're familiar with that in the further education sector regulation frameworks it suggests restriction reduction is that inevitable are we inevitably in this sector stuck with this concept of the regulated professional or can we break out of that is there a better future for the sector Well, we are stuck with it for the minute, aren't we? But I have so many examples of where practice is breaking out of that because it's values led practice. And I think we are right to challenge it. And challenging from a values perspective often means that people might listen in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. I'm going to get a bit philosophical here, but Foucault and others talk about (laughs) monuments and documents. And we tinker around with the documents. We change the standards. We write a new policy. We change somebody's job title. We call observations other things that are still observations. But nothing's happening about the monument. And that's the system structures and processes that we're all working within. So, no, I don't think we stuck with it. But I do think it needs some collective thinking. And that's happening in some places to think about how to write that autonomy, you know, that sort of internal personal ethics back into the picture. 
I worked on the DfE's Community Learning Mental Health Research Project, which ran from 2015 to 2017, with hundreds of community educators, adult educators across the country. We forget they're also part of our sector. It's my background, my heartlands, where I come from. (laughs) And even when we explicitly asked people for the stories of their practice, they told us the student story, the individual transformation, often the tragic life story that hides behind it. And for me, there's a real job to do in writing educators' voices back in, in order to challenge this monument. And let's keep with that monument as a a metaphor at the moment, because culture Culture is sometimes described as a, as a monument, as a, as a motive for a particular type of work. But actually, the complexity of FE suggests that perhaps there are many different kinds of cultures. When we speak of culture, organisational theorists such as Edgar Schein, the great American psychologist, suggested it was about the values, norms and expectations that drive a business. Its missions, its priorities, its leadership approach, how it treats employees and customers, its routines and procedures, how a business reacts to problems and its attitude towards learning. Culture is not instantly attained, suggests Shine, but evolves gradually as employees draw on past experiences in particular ways to solve new problems. Culture, it can be argued, is the lifeblood of a high-quality workplace and is measured by looking at the behaviours of those linked to its production. Recently, we've heard a lot in the news about high teacher vacancies, problems of recruitment and difficulties around retaining teachers. The recent white paper published in 2021 suggested that more could be done to develop teaching and management career pathways. Now, Luke, with your understanding of the sector, how would you like to see our professional culture changing so that it becomes a career of choice for those who have not yet considered a job in FE teaching or training? If I can just take a slight step backwards, the word culture is not value neutral. Cultures can be healthy or unhealthy or anything in between. And our massive FE organisations now often have many different cultures within sites or even departments. They're huge. People don't know one another. They're too big for that. So I believe that culture changes through the building of trust. And I've been really fortunate to do a lot of work with Dr. Christina Donovan, who is an FE researcher, trust researcher. And her model for trust, which is very forward facing, actually begins with transformation, which is quite challenging for us in FE because we think of transformation as being what happens to the student individual at the end. But she says where we can make an intervention, do something differently, people start to gather around that till a critical mass builds and then there is thriving and where there's thriving, there is hope. And in talking with her actually on a different podcast about this, we realised that actually for me, that's the stages of building community as well. So for me, it's at the heart of this and the work that we have to do. To specifically answer your question, is there only a teaching pathway and a management pathway? Because there isn't. So advanced practitioners, for example, they teach, they might be managers, but they are leaders of quality. Again, not a value neutral word, but it's used as one. They are responsible for professional learning. They are networkers. They build communities themselves within and outside the organisation. We did a fabulous piece of work with Christina on AP Connect last year, which really showed this because APs themselves were part of that research as co-evaluators. So there isn't only teaching and management, but that's all we see. We also get really confused about what management is and what leadership is. I'm very critical of management. 
I'm critical because what I hear from the sector is that creative, exciting, wriggle room practice gets blocked at that sort of level. Frightened managers who are given huge responsibilities. But for me, management should be about managing the work, not managing the person. And leadership is something else. So it doesn't have to happen from the top and it can't. We know that negative culture change can come about with the replacement of a principal, for example, or somebody in a key role. Positive culture change takes more than that new principal who will set the tone. But there has to be leadership from within distributed leadership. That is the way forward. And the kind of leadership I'm talking about, I'm drawing on the work of Brene Brown here who has 20 plus years of researching shame, vulnerability and leadership. And she makes a distinction between the sort of armoured leadership, which we see in FE, which is very driven by fear, overwork, tiredness, and then vulnerable leadership, which she calls daring leadership, where people write values back in and attend to Not the usual documents, but documents like how we run meetings, how we communicate with one another, how we genuinely hear people's voices, how we stop playing the game and actually work together in ways that the private sector often does really effectively. And actually, quite often we do not. And that's the sort of culture change that people will want to see, particularly if we're drawing on them from the private sector, as we so often are with FE. People come in from what we call industry, which also places a certain imagery. You know, I I never thought of beauty therapy as industry before. I'm from the South Yorkshire coal field. Industry is the steelworks, but we call it that. And people come in and I'm going to stay with that beauty therapy. They come in with this practice of care, this ethics of care and customer care and this service, public service ethic. And what they find is at management level, everything but that. And that's very challenging. I think that's a massive tension we have within our cultures. And we won't be, we can maybe recruit people in, but we ain't keeping them, Paul, because they come in, they take a look at our overweening hierarchies, at our huge burden of bureaucracy, at our endless meetings, and they think, what am I doing here? There's no doubt about it that uh, vacancies are a major problem for colleges and other training institutions uh, up and down the country. This notion of workload, workload is is the primary driver for people leaving the sector. So there's something there about what we need to attend to uh, as a a profession. And some would even say, well, is further education a profession? What would you say to that? Is further education a profession? Further education teaching is a profession. Further education leadership is a profession. Further education administration is a profession. You know, how do we treat those people who work alongside us and all the care services within further education, many of which I think that the trend is slowing down now, but get subcontracted to Costa or whatever. We are all professionals within that that unit, that hive and all have a part to play. So, yes, we are professionals and professional to me. Well, to to be honest, I believe you can find professionalism in any job. I've worked in a shop. I've worked in a care home. I've worked in a bar. I I like to think that I brought professionalism to all of that, whether you're keeping the back of your bar clean or, you know, you're caring for a human being. So part of the problem we have in our whole culture in this country is we only see certain things as professions and we fall in the middle. Because we allow doctors and and judges to be professionals, and I'm going to say politicians, 
But we ourselves sort of are in this middle ground where we are professionals and we're not allowed to act as such. No, and um, in something that you said earlier, daring leadership is a concept that I haven't heard, but is certainly one which is incredibly intriguing. Daring leadership. Where do we go with that? And what could the ETF do to support daring leadership? I would love the ETF to consider bringing the dare to lead concept to particularly management training. I think there's a lot happening within leadership training, senior leadership training. I don't know the detail, but I'm heartened by some of the things that I hear. But to management training, bringing that concept in as a starting point, have a look on Brene Brown's Dare to Lead Hub. There's a questionnaire you can do, and I do that with people up and down the country, and they get a sense of where their leadership is at. And we do some brilliant work with that around getting people to really reflect on that and then come up with practical, incisive questions for how to change things. We've got so many materials like the thinking environment, so many processes out there that we can use and we don't use. Well, we use, but they don't necessarily get into the places that they need to get. Anybody listening, go and have a look. Do that questionnaire and have a look at the gifts of imperfection on her website as well. That will tell you so much about yourself. What I read in that in every single organisation that is subject to Ofsted is that we have issues around perfectionism because we've got that word outstanding at the top and we know from all the research that perfectionism makes us sick at the other end of the spectrum from that in Brene Brown's work is self-compassion so this is the time for self-compassion in the sector put the big stick away you know we can deal with the KPIs and I might say a little bit more about that later but we need self-compassion at all levels and contexts of the organisation. I would love to talk to the ETF about doing daring leadership work. I think the ETF will be very interested too, as they probably would, um, in terms of how do we embed positive well-being across the entire sector for everybody that actually works in that sector. Many distinguished writers have reported on the issue of professional culture in the further education and training sector. Professor Jocelyn Robson, almost 25 years ago, described the sector as fragmented because she believed it lacked the overarching structures and processes to manage the workforce in a consistent way. Many have argued that what binds educators of all stripes and colours is their commitment to their students. What you were saying, Lou, other writers as far as back as Ross Clow in 2001 have suggested that a common system of teacher training qualifications linked to career progression was the key to developing a strong professional community with a consistent set of values, beliefs and practices. So, Lou, what's your view of the research that has been looking at the issue of professional culture in further education and training? Where does today's research need to be directed? I think you've already started to hint at certain things that are happening in this space. Yeah, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record, but I think the motif is the same. So I absolutely am 100% behind recognised qualifications. I think that educators have the right to move from one organisation to another to find a culture that suits them and their qualifications need to be recognised. Trends have got hold of the curriculum. People are encouraged to stick to reading lists. That's not how you develop your own professionalism. One of the greatest paradox of a thinking environment is that freedom needs boundaries. So I'm all for frameworks, but frameworks are only there just to hold you gently in place while you figure out your own stuff and what's right for your teaching in your context. So what are your values? 
How can you develop as an independent thinker? How can you develop as a researcher? So it can be the same qualification, but when it's not stitched up so tightly that everybody chunks out the other end, you know, like the same sausage, you can have that framework and make it work. And when I worked at Northern College, the people, the teachers that I trained, CERTED PGCE, they worked in the NHS. They worked as youth workers, they worked in community projects, they worked in community learning, they worked in colleges, and they were able at that time to find the thinkers, the research that made sense to them and develop their own professionalism quite genuinely. And that's what we need again. Sure. And I'm going to now pick up on one or two things that you've started to mention uh, over the last couple of questions. And I'm going to refer yourself to a quote that you've got on your website, which I thought was a fascinating one. Agency has been chased out of professional repertoires and in many organisations, only the boldest dare think for themselves. It's quite a big quote. What did you mean by that quote? How does it relate to your work on the thinking environment? Well, let me start by saying what the thinking environment is, and then that makes more sense of the rest of my answer. It's a set of practices which enable the conditions for independent thinking. And I think if you or I asked any FE educator if they wanted students themselves, their colleagues, to be able to think independently, they would say yes. And yet we throw curveballs in the way of that all the time. The thinking environment is about making that promise that you are going to enable thinking to be as independent as it can be, whether you are thinking or whether you're offering the gift of your listening. So what we do in a thinking environment, what's interesting, Paul, is that people who don't like my work and in particular don't like the thinking environment part of my work, they describe it as fluffy, right? We hold simple rules in place, like without exception, It is the most disciplined process that I've ever worked with. It makes a mockery of our standard meetings. Honestly, once you've experienced thinking environment in a meeting, you never want to go back. These rules are facilitated 100% because what they hold in place are the 10 values of a thinking environment. So we talk so much about values, leadership, values, practice. A lot of it's hot air, it's in the mission, it's laminated on the walls, it's on the lanyard, it's not lived. And these are values which are enacted within these rules and they are lived. And within that, people are given the space, including through silence, without interruption, to be able to figure out what they think. And I've actually been training and practicing a thinking environment for 26 years. I was pregnant with my son when I went to my first ever thinking environment training at the Centre for HIV and Sexual Health in Sheffield. Imperfectly, and on the last two years, I've learned so much about it online as well, because online can be a very disciplined space, though in most cases isn't. So that quote relates to the thinking environment, because once you start thinking about yourself, what you discover as well, alongside your values, you discover your agency, your sense of power. And again, to bring some philosophy into this, My PhD work is is based about community education, based very much on the philosophy of Baruch Spinoza back in the 17th century in uh, The Hague. And he had two words at his disposal for power because he was writing in Latin. He had potestas, which is the power relations as we know it, the hierarchies, the individual status. 
And then he had Potentia. And Potentia is a sort of activist energy. It's joyful. It often operates in community. And and mobilising Potentia is what the AP programme is all about for us. And agency is about discovering your potential. Actually, I can change things. But in some environments, that's not super safe. You know, you get a reputation. I did. (laughs) Somebody who's always going to be a thorn in the side. Even in a values-based challenge, you have to be bold. And you get that boldness from thinking with others in a thinking environment, from working with others in constellations of practice like AP Connect, but also like many of the canopy of wonderful grassroots driven, I hesitate to call them networks, I'm going to call them constellations or communities in FE, such as the FE Research Community, uh, Joy FE, which is a part of a community that I was um, I had the privilege of, of, of co-founding. That's where people get their potential energy and they're able to challenge things. So there's something about the practice of a thinking environment, like any practice like yoga or meditation or running. You know, it takes a while to get used to it. But where you get to with that, I think, is to a place of radical candor. And this in this I'm referencing the work of Kim Scott. Her book, uh, Radical Candor, it's got really tiny writing, but apart from that, it's brilliant. And she recognises Radical Candor as being able to have conversations which are direct and also kind. Clear is kind. And what we have a lot of in FE, we don't have the obnoxious aggression that she talks about so much anymore, though I think at the top sometimes it can be like that. But we have what Brene Brown calls the near enemy. So that is a sort of manipulative insincerity. It's sort of saying to someone, oh, yeah, you know, you're doing great work there. However, I want you to do these hundred other things or actually seeing somebody failing and then, you know, ruinous empathy, which is part of the radical candor model. means seeing somebody who's failing but not having the courage as a manager to actually go in and have that conversation in a way which is supportive and developmental. All of that, Paul, comes back to this label of outstanding. When we expect consistent perfection, we create cultures where it is not okay to make a mistake. And if it's not okay to make a mistake, by extension, it's not okay to try or even think anything new. Yes, and very much so. A high stakes environment driven by the need for institutions to serve their communities by showing and demonstrating visibly that they have met student outcomes, that they have met imposed quality regimes. There's there's always been an issue in further education and training about whether or not, you know, the role of Ofsted and the role of frameworks is a good, positive and enhancing thing or whether or not it's something that has to be put up with. Now, I think there are arguments on on both counts there, and I certainly wouldn't want to get into a debate about whether or not, you know, that kind of regime has been appropriate for the further education and training sector. But there's no doubt there has been implications for practice coming out of trying to abide and adhere to regimes like that. And one of those is impoverished thinking. It's about, well, I've only been asked to do these three things, so I'll only be seen to be doing these three things. And those five other things that I think would add enormous value to the role and importantly to my students, well, 
I don't think I'll need to do that because I know that I'm under pressure to fulfill these three things, these three visible demonstrated things, because that's what the framework is asking. Now, I might have caricatured many staff who would say that I don't do that at all. That's that's not how I approach my role. And uh, my apologies in advance if if that's what it's come across like. But it, it, there's no doubt, is there not, that these kinds of frameworks do restrict and in some cases you might say inhibit thinking and practice and community building. Um, do you empathise with that or have I? Is, is that going too far? There isn't a binary for me. There's never a binary for me. Sometimes they jump into my head and I try and really work to see what else is in there. I don't think I'm saying, I'm certainly not saying there shouldn't be a framework. I don't think I'm saying there shouldn't be an offset. I'm saying get rid of that word outstanding is what I'm saying because of the burden of expectation of perfection. Frameworks are really helpful. Frameworks help us know where we are. I'm very much, I'm a researcher, I'm very much one for evaluation. I think it's really important to know where we are. I'm a college governor, you know, I I understand that. I think there is far too much time and energy spent on the KPI line, let's call it the KPI line, because of fear in unhealthy cultures which are under the burden of perfection. I absolutely, I heard something the other day where it took seven signatures to sign off I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but let's say a a trip to an employer. Those seven, no evil genius has sat down and said, we need seven signatures. They've built up over time as roles have changed. People are fearful. How do I cover my backside? You know, taking a good hard look and we need our administrators, our forgotten administrators for this, taking a good hard look about how those KPIs can be met efficiently and accurately stripping away a lot of this nonsense and hot air, looking at the way that we draw people into meetings, looking at the way we call everything urgent. Paul, I have worked in A&E. Nothing in FE is urgent short of an acute safeguarding incident. So all the drama and noise around the KPI line, if we can quieten that down, what we can then do is values line work. And that's where the thinking environment comes in as a process to enable us to do rich thinking which is not as you say impoverished so i i'm not disagreeing i just don't think it's a binary and one of the challenges we have i think is that discourse around fe it's not nearly as bad as schools particularly on social media which is very binary okay nancy klein was the founder of the thinking environment concept would you like to say anything more about what you think she might have added to this notion of culture So I trained with Nancy and it's from her that I learned my precision in a thinking environment. And she was working as a teacher and a coach. We're going back 50 years now. And what she noticed was the conditions that seemed to be in place where people when people were able to make breakthroughs in their thinking. So she brought us those observations What has happened in the intervening 50 years and most definitely over the last 20 years is a huge body of practice and research which has built up over those years and which has strengthened and refined these practices, but which has never moved away from those rules. They are sound and solid. So we know things from neuroscience now and neurobiology that really back up Nancy's observations. So, for example, we know inside the brain that the brain thinks better in response to a question 
one of the things that people do when they run their meetings as thinking environments is they put the agenda items as questions and immediately people want to contribute more than they did. The brain feels it. So there's, there's lots of different examples of that. Bringing the thinking environment to public service outside the NHS where I did my training is what's been happening over the last few years. And people are taking those practices. This is educators, often at AP level, but not always, sometimes at senior leadership level, sometimes at tutor level, taking this into their organisations and contextualising the way they use the thinking environment while still being utterly disciplined about these rules. I think that what this understand, what this contributes, all of this practice to our understanding of professional culture is back to the beginning, that professional culture starts with the individual, their own professionalism, their connection with their values, which we'd call their own personal ethics. And in them being able to explore that, not by writing a piece of reflection for their cert ed, which in my experience, without the scaffolding of the thinking environment, becomes very sort of self-blaming. Actually, making sense in community with others, you don't do a thinking environment on your own. The whole point is you go into a thinking environment space to think with somebody else, whether that's one or many. So it's brought that collective, that community to thinking, I think, as well. And also a real efficiency, again, back to the wasted hot air. One of the pieces of research, and I can't remember the original source, that Nancy quotes in The Promise That Changes Everything is that 30% of time in meetings is taken up with interruptions. I mean, Paul, that's not even hot air or tangents or going round in circles. This resonates with everybody. I mean, you're laughing, but whenever I teach this, eyes just roll round the room because everybody hates a meeting. Because they're not disciplined, even though, again, they've got this imposed agenda. We look at the matters arising and do, do, do. Any other business, let's throw a power play in at the end. It's the discipline of it. It's the discipline of it. What we're good at in, in FE, we're really good at compliance. I don't think we're terribly good at discipline when it comes to the management of the work. I'm going to make some links between what you've said and um, some sort of comments that have been raised in earlier podcasts. Back in June 2021, I suggested that building expertise, a community ethos and improving practice were the three practical strategies that FE and training institutions could invest in to develop the professionalism of their staff. Now, linking these was a demand for a cultural shift towards ensuring we recognise and acknowledge people for their contributions, which I think is very much embedded in what you've been saying, Lou. Recognition, I suggested, acted as the engine of professionalism. People like to be recognised. The researcher Helen Colley once said that being valued and visible to others helps to strengthen our self-belief and professional identity. And being recognised means that we make a difference and people see us as making a difference. Now, you've been talking about the thinking environment, and it seems to be a concept that offers a powerful way of re-energising professional relations through a more creative, respectful approach to building consensus in conversations and pooling people's expertise for mutual benefit, which recognises individuals' unique capacity to provide new ideas and insights. Now, you've also talked about community, Lou, and The communities of practice model has gone back for several decades. Jean Lave and Etienne Wenger in 1991 suggested that successful communities are vibrant, 
dynamic constellations of professionals that share, discuss, question, research, reflect on and support each other's work, that they build solidarity and cohesion amongst groups, much of which is around professional cultural norms and requirements. People feel those things in a professionalised culture. They sustain professional dialogue and inquiry, and they can be reservoirs of creativity and endeavour as individuals see themselves as part of a connected whole. Last big question for you, Lou, then. In your view, how do we best support and strengthen these communities so that they can have a transformative effect on our professional culture? I'd like to start, Paul, if I may, by going back to the three practical strategies that you suggested. I think they're great. Building expertise, absolutely. A community ethos, that's great, but that's got to be lived, not laminated. So how do you do that? How do you enact and practice values? And then improving practice, yeah, but don't we put it all on the shoulders of teaching and learning? You know, there's the financial side that the FE Commissioner looks at. But we put so much on the shoulders of teaching and learning, whilst at the same time not allowing teachers to be true professionals with autonomy and agency. So I just wanted to sort of riff off that a little bit. There's something for me about building an architecture that people can use and that's on the macro level and on the micro level as well. So Leven Wenger are very clear and have been very clear from the very start of their work that you can't impose these things. Many people listening will have been in organisations where they're told to join a community of practice around maths or whatever and everybody will do everything they can to wriggle out of it because you don't know what it's for, you don't know what your role is in it. At the same time, while we've got amazing communities of practice in FE, the latest one, cross-organisational vocational tutors getting together in community, using Thinking Environment IDs rooms to just explore their practice together. That's wonderful. But something else, I'm not sure sort of globally what that would look like but I do want here to give you know credit to the advanced practitioner program that I, I work on that Joss Kang runs where what we've tried to do over a number of years not knowing at the start that this is where we needed to go with it just going with it is build an architecture for that to happen so build spaces and then make those spaces run with the disciplined practice of a thinking environment we say in a thinking environment that role, rank and ego should be left at the door. The ego of our monument, I'm not talking about individuals, the ego of the monument is that as soon as you do something like this, you want to control it. So how we can build these architectures without trying to take control, keeping the KPI line light, Letting the values work happen is a challenge. And whenever we are just being pulled back into the orbit, the go-backery of drawing to the KPI line, then we're never going to get that work done. So it is happening, Paul. But we need, we need the ETF. We need leaders out there. We need Ofsted to all really take that message of hope on board. Extraordinary passion, extraordinary optimism there, uh, a message of hope for the sector uh, and things are happening. That's what we're really saying, that things are happening out there and we're looking to build that conversation further. Lou, we've come to the end of our time. That brings us to an end of this episode. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your views about professional culture and the thinking environment. We've heard today how a new approach to thinking and engaging with others in professional settings can significantly enhance the power of people's creativity 
to offer new ideas, solutions and collegiality in a space that can be frenetic and intense. If you want to know more about today's topic, the thinking environment, you can contact me, Paul Tully, at paul.tully at etfoundation.co.uk or alternatively, Dr. Lou Mycroft is on LinkedIn and can be found on Twitter and at her website, Cultural Change. In the meantime, thank you for listening. For more information on professionalism or to listen to other episodes in this series, please visit the SET website at set.et-foundation.co.uk. 